Hey, podcast fam, Eric here. And if you're an affiliate marketer or looking to monetize your online presence, you need to know about ShareASale.com. ShareASale is not just an affiliate network. It's your gateway to a world of opportunities. With thousands of high-paying affiliate programs across various niches, ShareASale connects you with top brands ready to collaborate with content creators like you. Imagine earning commissions for simply sharing products you love. Whether you're into fashion, tech, or lifestyle, Share Us Sale has got a partnership waiting for you. Ready to turn your passion into profits? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash shareasale and sign up today. It's free, it's easy, and and it's your ticket to unlocking a new revenue stream for your business. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to Milwaukee Mafia. This is Eric Waltergens. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, first Gavin has some exciting news for us, yep. depending on what you consider exciting news. Yeah, we have a, a Patreon account that should be set up by the time you hear this. All the episodes you've been hearing, you're going to be able to continue to hear. Every single one we do will be available, so you're not missing any of the history. The thing is, we'll be switching to every other week instead of every week. And then for our Patreon subscribers, you get the bonus content, which is going to be Milwaukee Mafia mailbag. And then you get to hear me just ramble without my notes about different questions that people have. So hopefully that's that's fun enough that, you know, you'll throw us a buck or two here and there. But if you don't feel like throwing us a buck or two, you still get the regular episodes for free. Yeah. And for anybody that doesn't know what Patreon is, it's just a simple way for people to support podcasts. So yeah, and that's just going to get you access to those extra episodes. Yeah. All right. I guess we'll jump into the subject of the day, which is this time we're talking about the Scafidi family. Wonderful last name. Let me see if I can say that. Scafidi? Scafidi. You know, maybe I'm not even saying it right, but that's the best I can get out of that is Scafidi. So. All right. So what is... I mean, it could, me be, guess, could be Scafidi, I suppose. <laughs> so I'm going to guess one of them dies or all of them die? Uh, multiple people die. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's not give it all away. <laughs> so kick her off then. Okay. So this is... a. Uh, Like usual, this is a modification from a chapter in the Milwaukee Mafia book. Now, in the Milwaukee Mafia book, I started out and I talked about a Scafidi family member who lived in New Orleans, and I'm cutting that. We're not talking about that because I wanted to bring it in there and talk about there was a police chief who was murdered in 1890 in New Orleans. Scafidi was one of the the suspects etc, etc. And I was like, hey, we also have a Scafidi family member in Milwaukee. Problem with that is I was never able to prove they were actually related. (laughs) So uh, my assumption was, well, how common is this name? They're probably cousins. And maybe they are, but I wasn't able to prove it. So we won't talk about any of that. We're just going to start right off in Milwaukee. We got James Scafidi, we're starting with. Okay. Um, which technically, he's not hes not from Milwaukee. He lives in Cudahy, but hey, it's the same thing. Yeah. Sorry if you live in Cudahy, but <laughs> you're in Milwaukee. Same thing. <laughs> he lived on Holmes Avenue. His house was packed with Scafidi relatives, including Sam, who could have been his brother, could have been his cousin. Nobody really knew for sure. Sometimes they said one thing, sometimes <laughs> they said the other. These families are so tight, it was hard to tell. Well, anyway, James Scafidi, just a normal, regular guy. He worked at a rubber company. And one night, he's out walking home, December 1919, and you know what happens? He gets killed. He gets killed. He's shot six times from behind. 
Man, and they just do a good job when they kill somebody. Yeah, they I mean, do. You know? He was found in a ditch in the town of Lake. If you don't know where Lake is, it's basically where the Milwaukee airport is. He actually was armed. He had a thirty-eight revolver on him, but uh, getting shot from behind, he never saw it coming. The police chief investigated it personally for six months, but they were unable to solve the crime, and his wife gets remarried soon after that. No justice for him. No justice for James Scafidi. We bring him up not just because he's killed, but because he has two sons. He's got Joseph, who we'll start with. His son Joseph was known to be a criminal, unlike James, who we don't know. I mean, it's a little suspicious he's carrying a gun and he gets shot, but we don't know. We don't know why. Joe, at first, he's arrested for destruction of property. He's placed on probation. He then gets arrested for theft and put on probation. He then gets arrested for theft again and gets 17 months in the Waukesha Industrial School for Boys, which is kind of like a a reform place for young offenders. He gets out. He is not reformed. He starts hanging out with the local gangs. And now we're into the 1920s. He steals car tires, apparently is profitable. That case was dismissed, but not long after he's arrested again for burglary, he gets two years in Waupun State Prison. So this guy, he's steadily getting arrested. Like, who knows how many times he's not caught. He's he's arrested for theft many times. So he's in Waupun for a while, but his friends and the gang are staying busy. So when you say the gang, are you referring, is this mafia members or is this some other gang? These are, well, this is like the, the farm team. Okay, you're gonna have to define that. <laughs> oh, that's a you know it's a baseball baseball term. Oh, okay, okay. So it's a gang that is kind of being groomed by the mm-hmm. by the mafia. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for throwing out a sports analogy <laughs> in a mafia podcast. Yeah, so these guys are not these guys are not mafia members themselves, but some of them will go on to be mafia members. They're they're just they're like teenagers out there causing trouble right now. Now, is this something where it's kind of groomed by the mafia, or was this just a gang that, theoretically, they pulled members from, or do you know? Probably more the second one. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say, because sometimes it could go either way. Usually it's like, you catch somebody's attention, you know, like, oh, this guy, we know that he's been going out there doing this stuff, maybe we want him. But other times it could be they're already... Like supporting them okay. because you know. So there sometimes is in- sometimes you need a fence. You need somebody to to get rid of the stuff you stole. So you so, might already know the mob guys. Okay, so this is it is known that there were gangs out there theoretically that worked directly with the Milwaukee mafia. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll say yeah. I I call it farm teams, but that's that's yeah. that's my term. That's not an that's actual. That's actually term. a very good term though. Okay. If I had had baseball on my head, I would have gotten yeah. it immediately. But. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so so Joe's in prison. His friends are out there causing trouble yet. A grocery store gets robbed. One of the guys in the gang robbing it is a man named Marshall Cafano. Maybe I'm saying that bad. I don't know. But that's the name people will know, and we'll get back to that in a bit. When they're caught, the men involved had revolvers on them. They had stolen license plates on them. So don't know what they were doing with that. Um, the room that Kefano was found in had four loaded revolvers, three forty-fives, a thirty-eight. So he was he had a small gun collection going. Soon more men were captured while they were planning a bank robbery. 
Uh, Kefano pleads guilty and he's, he's sentenced to one to three years in the House of Correction. But despite the one to three years, he's actually back out eight months later. He went on to be one of the most influential members of the Chicago outfit, which is the Chicago version of the mafia. Oh, yeah. He ends up later on changing his name to John Marshall, which is easier to say than Marshall Kefano. And he's uh, kind of like the mob's guy in Vegas. He sort of oversees things in Vegas. So he becomes a pretty big guy later on. Another one is sentenced to three years in Green Bay, um, and he was later involved in numerous bank robberies. So, I mean, these guys, none of these are all lifers. These are all, they get in, they get out, they keep doing stuff. This one you might remember from an earlier episode, the Tony Spills the Beans episode, because on the evening of January 23rd, 1933, Charles Schmidt is hijacked by Tony Gennaro. I remember Tony Gennaro. And Joe Scafidi, our guy this episode. Okay. They thought that Schmidt was hauling alcohol and ran him off the road and searched his car, but they found nothing. They let him go, but he caught their license plate number and wrote it down. The men were arrested at a soft drink parlor. Police found two revolvers and four fake badges in their car. You might remember the fake badges part. I do. Okay. We're just bringing it back up again. This time we're talking about Scafidi. We don't care about Tony Gennaro (laughs) this time. Scafidi was charged with carrying a concealed weapon and sentenced to 15 months in the House of Correction. He crippled his left arm in jail machinery and was released after serving only six months. They maim you and they're like, well, I guess you can get out of here then. So after only six months, he's out again. Now he joins up with uh, Harry D'Angelo, who's a known burglar. They get pulled over in a car and arrested for vagrancy. Which is just sort of like a generic thing police arrested people for. Police found in their car four shotguns. D'Angelo said, we just returned from a hunting trip. Well, the police couldn't prove otherwise, so they let them go. Do you have like a time frame from, okay, so you say he gets out and then he joins up with this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there any effort in there to, uh, you know, straighten out his life or anything? Or was it just like, no. oh, I'm out, let's start committing crimes again? No. So like this recent one here. So it's January 1933 when he, when they hijacked this guy. And I don't know how long it takes for the trial and everything, but he's in jail six months. So that's at least July, August, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's pulled over with this guy the next time in November of the same year. So, so we don't know that he was doing anything wrong. Maybe they were coming back from a hunting trip, but he's already under suspicion again. Wow. Yeah. So it's just literally, I'm out, let's get back to work. Yep. Did you get attached to, to Joe Scafidi at this point? Are you? Do you feel for him? No, not really. Okay, good. Because, because he's about to die. Because he's huh? about to die. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe Scafidi, uh, now he's with uh, Angelo Claros, who was mentioned earlier, just one of these guys in the gang. They left the duplex that they lived in together in November 1935. They drive down to Chicago. They're trying to drum up some business. They, they were moonshiners. At this point, booze is legal again. But they're still making moonshine. So they're going down to Chicago trying to get some customers. They get down to Custer Street, which I don't know really where that is, but it's in Chicago. They're followed by a Ford V8 without license plates and forced to pull over. Witnesses said that they seemed to be friends. They spoke to each other for a little bit in friendly tones. But then the attackers pulled guns and shot the pair repeatedly in their heads. Witnesses could not describe the men. And just said, we don't know what they looked like, but they drove off that way. (laughs) In Cleros' pocket, they found a love note to his wife. But the note also said, 
I'm sorry, I can't quit the racket because it's in my blood and there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Strange thing to say, say but... Well, and and there wasn't a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. No. There was a big pile of bullets. Yeah, <laughs> so, so not, not this time. At first, police suspected that the two guys were trying to muscle in on a Chicago alcohol racket and, uh, you know in their own brand of moonshine in there instead of whatever the Chicago brand was. That's their original thought. And that proved not to be the case? Well, we don't know. Okay. The theories keep changing again and again. They spoke to Angelo Claros's wife. And she said, I don't know anything about it. She's like, I knew that he was a bootlegger, but I thought most of the time he just worked at a fruit stand. So she doesn't know. <laughs> she said that one time uh, while he was sleeping, he talked in his sleep and he kept saying, I will get you, Jimmy. I will get you, Jimmy. <laughs> it's a weird thing to remember, but... But she doesn't know who Jimmy was. Now they thought, well, maybe when he was in prison with Marshall Kefano, maybe they had a falling out, and Marshall Kefano wanted him dead. Another theory. Uh, police uh, questioned a few more members of the gang, and at this point, now they changed their theory again. Now they thought, maybe they were hijacking slot machines that belonged to a rival gang. And they were wanted dead by slot machine gangsters. Nobody nobody really knows. Basically, these guys were into so many different things that any number of things could have ended up getting them killed. Yeah. And so these two guys are now dead, and the case is never solved. <laughs> this poor family, man. Yeah. So we so, got a father and a son dead at this point. And no, nobody ever arrested for either one of their deaths. Mm-hmm. Okay. Father, James, shot dead. Son, Joe, shot dead. We're on to our third Scafidi family member. This is Tony, who is the son of the first guy, the brother of the second guy. Right. Do I even have to read this? Do we know where this is going? Well, I'm pretty sure he's going to die. He's going to die, but we'll go there anyway. <laughs> so he's actually a, in a different gang than his brother. He's in a gang, but he's in a different gang, strangely enough. In his gang, so they first come onto the scene in the 1930s when they rob a tavern in Sheboygan of all places. They tie up the owner and the customers with a radio wire. They take $100 and a few slot machines and a little bit of alcohol for the road. They smash a pinball machine in order to get some nickels out of it. Because back then you could play pinball for a nickel. (laughs) And you smash the entire pinball machine to probably get like 35 cents out of it. Yeah. (laughs) That's weird. Yep. They would have gotten away with it too, except one of them dropped a business card and on the back... He had the phone numbers of two girls that he liked. <laughs> the police talked to those girls, were able to trace it back to where those you know numbers came from, who wrote them down, and arrested were Charles Krupe, who was the brother of Vincent Krupe, the vice lord, so tying that back to an earlier one, uh, Lawrence Cortana, Pascal Rossetti, and Frank Bruno. Some of these names will come up repeatedly, some of them don't matter. Police also found bottles of alcohol uh, when they arrested them, and the bottles of alcohol had Sheboygan stamps on them. I don't know exactly what a stamp is, but whatever it is, they knew that this came from Sheboygan. So these Milwaukee guys were were there. Um, Rossetti had recently escaped from the Dodge County Jail by removing bricks from the wall in his cell. <laughs> so not a very good jail. Uh, within a week of this, uh, Krupe was sentenced to six years in Opon prison, and the others weren't very far behind. But prison is not forever. So they were sentenced for six years, so they probably got out in yeah. six months. But, yeah, but this yeah. does bring us forward in time. We're now up to the 1940s. 
So it does sound like they spent a reasonable amount of time in prison. Though. Or at least staying out of trouble, yeah. So now we're in 1943. There's a whiskey hijacking. And now we're back in Cudahy. It's whiskey hijacking in Cudahy, which involved Lawrence Cortana, who we mentioned, Pasquale Rossetti, who we mentioned. Now Tony Scafidi is involved, so he's in with this gang now. And Scafidi's brother-in-law... August Pintaro. So if we bring in another family member, one of the men took a truck containing liquor from in front of a bar while the others drove off in their car behind them. Uh, there were witnesses who were able to write down the license plate, of course. The truck was found about an hour later. It had 25 cases of whiskey in it originally. Only four of them were missing. So they left several of the cases still in the truck. Pintaro later claimed as his alibi that he had been at work during the hijacking, but his supervisor said, no, that's not true. <laughs> he wasn't here. So did did not work. Not work out for him. So you've talked about a couple times where they've done crimes with alcohol, even though pro- prohibition is long over. Yes. So did... I mean, by the 40s, it's very long over, yeah. yeah. So did they... Was this something they kept trying to push, like... Did it just become once prohibition ended? They tried to stay in the alcohol game. It just became stealing legal alcohol and maybe selling it for cheaper. Or mm-hmm. that was a big thing that they just kept going with, I guess. Um, you know, booze is good business. Like you could still make your own version of beer, whiskey, whatever, and sell it. And I don't know how profitable it was, but the point was you didn't have to pay all the taxes and. You know, because oh, uh, yeah. the revenue, the the IRS comes in and they're like, oh, we got to we got to stamp this and we got to regulate that. And, and hijacking legal, like actual, well, it's not legal once you hijack it, <laughs> but, but hijacking w- legit whiskey. I mean, you can if you know a bar owner, you can <laughs> sell it to them for cheap and but you got it for free. So it's a good profit. And then there's a classic thing that uh, these questionable bar owners did. And I'm pretty sure bar owners don't do this anymore. But uh they used to, what they would do is after they sold a bottle of, I don't know, we'll say Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. they'd fill the bottle back up with something that's not Jack Daniels. Real, oh, yeah. So like sell the cheap whiskey yeah. for So somebody would be like, Jack give Daniels. me give me your top shelf stuff and you'd give it to them, but it's not real. Like you you'd filled it back up with crap. So, I mean, there were all kinds of ways to make money off of alcohol because it's even now, I mean, we live in Wisconsin where booze is cheap. But, you know, once you leave Wisconsin, like, a the beer is expensive. Will, yeah, and the taxes will, are probably twice to three times as much as what they are in Wisconsin. Because yeah. Because we don't tax alcohol. So Yeah, like, if you leave the state and you're like, 10 bucks for a mixed drink, what the crap? <laughs> you know, I'd get that for three at home. <laughs> but, yeah. So. so how long did this go on for? Do you, do you see a point in time in history with the mafia that, that they kind of jump? You stop seeing these alcohol crimes, or was this a focal focus all the way through? I would say it definitely slows down at this point. I mean, it continued through the 30s, but by the 40s, I mean... This was probably an odd crime. To- well, this isn't that odd because they're hijacking whiskey and probably trying to resell it. So that's not that strange. But actually, like, making it yourself, the bootlegging it, by the 40s, that would have been pretty gone. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. No. Major sidetrack off the story, but... That's okay. Okay. So these guys, Lawrence Cortano, Pascal Rossetti, Tony Scafidi, and August Pintaro, they're at the office of a defense attorney in January 1944, so shortly after this. Uh, They paid him $250 uh, 
the attorney to handle their case. So this is all fine and good. But that evening, they leave the attorney's office. Are you kidding me? (laughs) They leave the attorney's office and they go to a bowling alley. They want to find a waiter at the bowling alley who could be a witness for them. You know, whether they're a real witness or just a BS witness, whatever. But they want to talk to a witness. So it gets to be a little after midnight. And while they're there, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there because I didn't find a witness. But they end up robbing two of the guys at the bowling alley. They hit one guy with a with a blackjack. Do you know what a blackjack is? No. Okay. Blackjack is like this little weighted, like a hacky sack with a weight in the end. Okay. They hit him over the head with it. Um, take some money. Take his watch. Take his car keys. Uh, the other guy, they just get 23 bucks off of. By the time the police arrived, everybody's run away. But guess who's a little slower than the others? Tony Scafidi. <laughs> <laughs> so as he's running away, uh, a patrolman fires, hits him in the rear shoulder, fires a second time, hits him in the neck, and you don't want to be shot in the okay. neck. That's a big no-no. So, And that's all she wrote for him. Yeah, so he he's, he's running, and uh, he stops running, and... It's a little too late for him. Well, it's it's good to know that at least we know who killed one of the That's true. members we of actually, the family. We, so. we do know who the killer was this time. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Three men were caught. Lawrence Cortana was caught. Um, he was hiding in a stranger's basement when they found him. And then uh, August Pintaro is caught soon after that. The police are still out there looking for Pascal Rossetti. They're pretty sure he's involved, but they didn't catch him right away. Okay, they got a call that uh, Rossetti was living in the Carlton Hotel with a woman named Hazel Gray. So they waited until 9 p.m., but they never saw him leave. So they told the hotel clerk, hey, if you see them come in or come out, could you give us a call? And they wrote down all the phone numbers of the calls coming in and out of this room. They find the calls are going to different bars in the area, uh, taxi cab companies, the Blatt's Brewery of all places. So they're... There're definitely people in this hotel room calling around to different bars and places. So they know they know that he's in this room. Okay, so a phone call comes in from the Wisconsin hotel, different hotel. This is where one of the guys who was held up is staying. He says to the police when they arrived that he was in the cocktail room and he was being watched by two Italian men. He said that he walked out to the lobby and saw three more Italian men who looked at him and kept their hands in their pockets. <laughs> By the time the police arrived, the Italians had left the hotel. He said that even when he was calling the police, an Italian girl stood next to him when he was making the phone call. (laughs) He thought that one of the men looked familiar from the bowling alley, but he wasn't sure. And two of the men looked like they could be brothers. So now he thinks after he's been held up that he's being trailed by other Italian guys. He called the other guy who was held up, who was was tending bar at the bowling alley. And he said, strangely enough, the same thing happened to me. So the police went and talked to him, and he said that an Italian man came in and ordered a bottle of beer and kept watching his every move. told an employee to watch the Italian man, and this made the Italian man nervous. So the Italian left after finishing his beer. The employee followed him out to the parking lot and tried to get his license plate, but couldn't get it. I don't know here. This is strange stuff. Now, these are the two guys that were robbed? Yeah, that were robbed okay. at the bowling alley. And and for whatever reason, the Italians are just following them around. Well, that or these guys are paranoid. Yeah, but are yeah. extremely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it could just be a par- an Italian guy and you assume, immediately <laughs> yeah. assume that, that, like, always after me. Right. 
they go through some formalities. They show the the two held up guys a bunch of photos, and they're able to pick out the right guys. So that's that's good. Um, they go to the guy's company, August Pintaro's company, where he's like, "Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, there. I was at work." And again, they confirm that he wasn't at work. And not only that, they talk to his coworkers, and one of the coworkers says that he's been selling gasoline coupons. And I'll clarify that for you, because uh, in the 1940s, uh, gasoline was rationed. So you'd have to buy these coupon books, and you could only buy so many gallons of gas because we had World War II, and gasoline was needed elsewhere. Well, anyway, this guy, uh, August Pintaro, was apparently uh, able to get gasoline coupons that he would sell to people. Uh, he sold them to one guy for, for $10. I have no idea if that's a good deal or not. And he says, you know, I regularly go on trips 600 miles or more. And he said, strangely enough, recently the Racine office that sells these coupon books had been burglarized, right. <laughs> and he wasn't at work on that day. Hmm. So <laughs> that never, never really gets investigated. But they're all, now this guy is suspected of that on top of everything else. This kind of winds down. Um, they eventually do find... Uh, Pasquale Rossetti, the one guy who was missing uh, by talking to his girlfriend, Hazel Gray. And eventually, it's not Hazel Gray that gives him up, but Hazel Gray's sister, because Hazel Gray's sister came to visit them at the hotel one day, walked into the hotel, and saw her sister in bed with him, (laughs) and was very upset by this. Like, I don't know if it was him specifically or just the fact that she walked in on her sister in bed. She was quite upset. So she's like, yeah, I'll tell I'll tell the police everything. And then she explained, you know, all these phone calls that were coming to place and everything. Like, apparently the sister was hanging around the place a lot because she knew a lot about what was going on in that room. The last member of this gang is arrested. They ended up going to jail except for Tony because he's dead. They're convicted of larceny, robbery. Um, Lawrence Cortano gets sentenced to 25 years. For example, but out of the twenty-five years he serves, eight. <laughs> wow, eight years, and he gets back out. He gets he... he gets back out again. You think maybe eight years in prison? He'd learn his lesson. No, <laughs> he immediately goes and he burglarizes a pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after this, Lawrence Cortano, he's done. I mean, you don't you don't get a twenty-five year sentence. Come out, burglarize again. He's pretty much at this point. He's going away to prison. The number one thing I find most interesting about this episode, yeah, and maybe maybe I just never made this connection before, but it just seems like the people in this story, they're just doing like really, really, really petty crimes badly, <laughs> like the whole yes, the, the whole bowling alley robbery. Why do you go do that? I mean, they could not have gotten very much money off of two people. Uh, no, you know, and even some like like they got some, a little under two hundred bucks. Yeah. I mean, and what, did they all go to jail for six years for that? Like, <laughs> th- is that really worth it? No. And, you know? No. It it really sounds like this fam, well, not even this family, but this maybe yeah. generation of these yeah. people are way more hot-headed and less disciplined or something than what yeah. we've been hearing. Well, it's not, a, it's not unusual for... Guys in their teens and their twenties, like to do this. This is pretty. This is going to be actually a running theme. Even the guys who go on to be big, a lot of their early stuff is really stupid stuff. But I, but you're not wrong. I mean, these guys, 
are repeatedly going to jail and getting back up and doing it again. And by the end, I mean, they've got to be like 30s, 40s or something. Yeah. They should probably know better at this point than trying to get 50 bucks. Right. And and it seems like they got smarter about it because sort of towards the end, you started getting to, they were still doing dumb crimes where they were breaking into pharmacies and stealing the safe. But at least the safe had... $1,400 $1,400 and yeah. as opposed to, I'm going to go blonk a dude on the head and get his 200 bucks. Yeah. Which I feel like you blonk two dudes on the head, you're blessed to get 200 bucks in the 1940s, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I because guess I, I'm guessing most people aren't going to be carrying that kind of cash with them. No, probably not. So it's just, it's just weird. And <laughs> it, it, I don't know if it this is. is like a, but I guess you're right. You're right. Because maybe this is what gets... Because, like you said, they weren't actually necessarily mafia members. They were part of this other gang that was right. kind of... And I wonder if this is how they start, and then the mafia comes in and says, Doo, stop doing stupid stuff, and Yeah, this is what you're going to do now. Right. But, I mean, but even the mafia, sometimes they need guys to do stupid stuff. Yeah. Because burglarizing a place, even if it's a good burglary, it's a stupid thing to do. Right. So you need these guys who are are not quite, who are not afraid to do stupid things like this. Because by the time you reach the point where, you know, you're the mafia guy who's wearing like the three-piece suit and smoking cigars, hanging out and everything, you're not the guy who's burglarizing places. Right. So you need these stupid kids to do it for you. Yeah, and even like with the mafia's better structured things they do. They're still out there extorting businesses for, like, safety protection. Right, right. And if they're going to have the businesses pay them, they want to be able to have a team that, when the businesses stop paying them, go in and rob the business and say, yeah, you better pay us or this is going to keep happening right. or something. So I guess that does make sense. It's just yeah, that really resonated with me. Was And like, these guys, yeah, this, this is kind of a dead-end game. Like I say, I mean, uh, Marshall K. Fano, he goes on. He goes on to be a pretty big guy. But pretty much everybody else, I mean, pretty Just, much either they're dead or they're failures. Yeah. So, <laughs> or they were not very good criminals. Yeah. All right. Do you got anything else for this story? No, I guess not. We've got three Scafidi family members and they're all dead now. So Yeah. And we know how one of them got killed. That's true. We do well, know. I mean, I guess we know how all of them got killed, but we have no idea who did it or why <laughs> for the first two. Right. So. Right. So... All right, I guess we'll wrap this one up then, Gavin. You hit them with the contact info. Sure. Uh, best way to reach me is a email, which is milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. You can find writing that has not yet appeared in books at milwaukeemafia.com through Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash milwaukeemafia. Keep the messages coming. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Hit us up with reviews on your favorite podcast player if you want to. Yeah. And other than that, have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.